Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. This morning by asking a question. What do you get for faithful service to God? Uh, What are the um, spiritual perks? Uh, What are the rewards? What are the blessings for faithfully serving the Lord Jesus? Jesus actually speaks to this in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and verse 30, where he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And when you hear Jesus say that, you recognize immediately there's a word that seems to be out of place, and that is the word persecutions. Because, you see, sometimes the rewards that we receive for faithfully serving our Lord is persecutions. In fact, sometimes it can even involve the loss of one's life. Just this week, I received, as I do on a daily basis, the religious uh, news service uh, release And on Monday of this week, uh, the Open Doors ministry, thousands of Christians have fled Iraq since church massacre. The article begins, If this exodus is not stopped, Iraq will not have any Christians left in three years. Since the Al-Qaeda-linked massacre that killed almost 60 Christians at Our Lady of Salvation Church in Baghdad on October the 31st, 2010, an estimated 45,000 to 95,000 Christians have left the country. Sources have told Open Doors that only an estimated 250 to 300,000 Christians remain in the country when in 1991 there were more than 850,000. Due to the killings, attacks, and threats, many Christians have lost relatives and have become so afraid that they have left Iraq for such countries as Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, and Jordan. Dr. Carl Moeller, Open Door USA President and CEO, labeled the attacks against Christians in Iraq as religious-side. He said, quote, Christians in Baghdad and Mosul are gripped by terror. They are fleeing in droves. Their families are threatened. Even young children are being killed. Extremists want to eliminate Christians from Iraq. And even Rabbi Yitzchak, Alderstein said, and I quote, Christians today are the largest group in the world facing life-threatening religious persecution. And the article ends, an estimated 100 million Christians worldwide suffer today interrogation, arrest, and even death for their faith in Christ with millions more facing discrimination and alienation. If you keep up again with the news, you know that recently in Pakistan on March the 2nd, Shabazz Hati, who was the only Christian serving in Pakistan's cabinet, was brutally murdered when at least four gunmen 
approached his car and riddled it with bullets. He later was found in a pool of blood and near his body a note that said, and I quote, a fitting lesson for the world of infidelity, the crusaders, the Jews, and their aids. This is the fitting end of the accursed one, which will serve as an example to others. And now with the blessing and aid of Allah, the Muhadim will send all of you one by one to hell. For his part, Shabazz Bati had done a video that took place just a few weeks before he died. And in that video, he simply said this, I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ, who has given his own life for us. I know what is the meaning of the cross, and I'm ready to die. And he did. If you would, take your Bible and join me this morning in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning with verse 14 and studying through, through verse 29. It's one of the most tragic passages, I believe, in all of the Bible. It is a passage that records the brutal murder, the martyrdom of the man we know as John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king. And asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came. They took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. Mark six fourteen through 29 is something of a flashback and a parenthesis where Mark records both the imprisonment and the execution of John the Baptist. He has just discussed the fact that Jesus had sent the 12 out with his delegated authority, and they'd had a wonderful mission. If you look at verse 12 and 13, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. But there's a key phrase that also occurs there at verse 11 where Jesus says, And if any place will not receive you, 
and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. And then when you come to verse 30, uh, we pick back up with their coming back and debriefing and giving a report to the Lord Jesus of all that they had been able to accomplish. And so interestingly, Mark drops in as a parenthesis between those two accounts, the record of the imprisonment and the beheading of John the Baptist. It's interesting to know that only two times in all of Mark's gospel are there any passages that deal with anything other than Jesus. And in both instances, in Mark chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 6, the person that is being dealt with is John the Baptist. So important is his execution that it is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew 14, Luke 9, but the longest account and the most full account we have right here in the Gospel of Mark. And I think that Mark dropped it in here as he did as a reminder to the apostles and as a reminder to you and me as we go out and minister in the name of Jesus. And as we go out and we perform mighty acts in his name, recognize it may cost you. Not only Will it be the case that sometimes people will reject your message? Sometimes they will reject you. In fact, sometimes they will even attempt and succeed in taking your life. Never forget, the cost of discipleship is great. If you doubt that, simply look at the life and the ministry of this man, John the Baptist. There are a number of valuable lessons that we can glean from this text today. A a passage that in many ways foreshadows the miscarriage of justice that will take place when our Lord Jesus is also put to death. In both instances, cowardly men capitulate to pressure, and they put to death God's man. John was not only the forerunner of the ministry and the message of Jesus, John the Baptist was also the forerunner of his death as well. So what is it that you and I can expect When we faithfully serve our Lord Jesus Christ, three lessons I want to draw your attention to from this passage this morning. Number one, expect that some people will fear you. When a man or woman of God is doing the work of God, we can anticipate a variety of responses. For example, sometimes people will see what we do and they will actually praise us. Jesus made this clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so sometimes people will actually praise us for the things that we do, but on other occasions they will oppose us. Uh, They will reject us, and in fact they may even fear what we're doing. They're not able to deny that God is at work in us, but they will still choose to reject and oppose and stand against us. Mark begins this account, I think, sarcastically with the phrase, King Herod heard of it. He was not a king. Uh, He was a tetrarch. That is, he had the authority over one-fourth of the kingdom that had formerly been ruled uh, by his father, the infamous Herod the Great. And yet he had claimed for himself this title, and so perhaps the people gave it to him popularly. But I tend to think that Mark was being something of of a a spiritual smart aleck here. And so he just simply says, King Herod, we all know he is not a king. Now, who is this King Herod? When you come to a New Testament survey, a New Testament introduction, and you begin to look at the historical background of the New Testament, my goodness, Herods are everywhere. 
And it is very difficult to keep up with them. And unfortunately, as I walk you through this text, it's going to become uh, just as confusing. But here's where we are. This Herod is a man named Herod Antipas. He achieved the tetrarchy of, 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 uh, of Galilee and Perea in 4 B.C. when his father died. And he would remain in that position all the way until A.D. 39. Now, on a couple of occasions, he appealed to Caesar Augustus, please give me the title of king, and he was flatly turned down every time. But then later in his administration, he had a nephew named Herod Agrippa. You know that name. And Herod Agrippa became cozy with the then emperor Caligula. And he appealed to Caligula to give him the title of king, and he got it. And so Herod Agrippa received the title from Rome of king. Well, this not only bothered uh, Herod Antipas, it ticked off his wife Herodias. And so as she had done throughout all of his life, she nagged him and she harassed him and she egged him on. And so finally he goes to Rome. He asked for the title of king, but unfortunately... He'd already been betrayed by his cousin Herod Agrippa, his nephew Herod Agrippa. And so when he goes to Rome, not only does he not get the title king, in AD 39 he is exiled to an outer area where he will spend the rest of his life and where he will die. The only commendable thing I can say to you this morning about Herodias is that she did go with him and she stayed with him until the end. But we learn from this text that he had no way of knowing how to deal with John the Baptist. In fact, in verse 20 it says he was greatly perplexed by John and he feared John. He just did not know what to do with John. Now, what is the problem here? Well, go back with me then to verse 14. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. He had heard of the ministry of the twelve and he had heard of the ministry of Jesus. It's now made its way into his court. And he is hearing that this man Jesus is preaching and healing and casting out demons. And so he draws an interesting conclusion. He says, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But when he brought his council together, when he took perhaps a a, a poll or maybe had an emergency cabinet meeting, he discovered that the buzz about this prophet from uh, Galilee went beyond just his superstitious uh, conclusion. People said, no, 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 Uh, he is Elijah. And of course, they would have warrant for saying that because in Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, we are told that Elijah would come before the terrible day of the Lord. But others said, no, he's not... um, He's not Elijah, but he is a prophet. Indeed, he is like the prophets of old. And it's interesting to note that Herod actually had a better opinion of Jesus than did his own family at this time and his own hometown of Nazareth. And yet in both instances, both the Nazarenes and Herod in his court have a faulty and inadequate opinion of who this man is. But... We've narrowed it down to three possibilities. Uh, he's like one of the prophets of old, or maybe he's Elijah who comes as prophesied by Malachi. But Herod the Great said, no, 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 no. I know who this man is. He is John the Baptist. Verse 16, John, this is who he is, whom I beheaded. He has been raised. In other words, Herod could not deny the good works of John. 
And what he had done now haunts him. He has a, a guilty conscience because he knows he has this man's blood on his hands. John the Baptist, a miracle child born to a man named Zacharias and Elizabeth in their old age, according to Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist, a man that the Bible says was called by God from his mother's womb. John the Baptist, the man that Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven was the greatest man who ever lived. And Herod had put him to death, and it haunted him. You see, John was a man of great courage and moral fiber, but not so with Herod. John was a man who loved God and boldly proclaimed his word, not Herod. John denounced sin wherever he saw it and called people to repentance and a radical change in life, but Herod would do neither, and in the end, he murdered an innocent man, and he murdered God's prophet, and it haunted him. And so as you and I conduct our ministries, recognize that sometimes people will fear us, and they will fear us because all we're doing is simply being obedient to the Lord. Sometimes those people will fear us outside the church, but sometimes we'll even be feared by those inside the church. And I, I would take note that in all that we read about John the Baptist, we have no instance where he tries to defend himself. He doesn't speak back. He, he doesn't write a blog. Uh, he doesn't send a letter to the editor. No, John just simply allows his works, his good, God-glorifying works, to testify for him. And I would submit to you and to me, we probably ought to follow in his pattern. We don't need to be worried about the gossip behind our backs. We don't need to worry about those who misrepresent us in various and sundry ways. And even if they perhaps are correct in getting our message right and getting our ministry right and opposing us, well, we have one of two options. We can either please God or we can please man. And that is the bottom line. And I pray that in my life and in your life, we'll be like John. And we will have a fear, but it will be a fear of God and not a fear of man. But you can expect that some people will fear you. But secondly, you can also expect that some people will try to stop you. We see this in verse 17 through verse 20. And we're now introduced to the, to the lurid events that led to the execution of God's man named John. It's a familiar story. We're going to see here a story of sex and power, and pride, and lust, and revenge. Herod may have been a weak and paranoid ruler, but his wife Herodias, oh my goodness, she was something else. I would suspect that she had a very high IQ. She seems to be a rather brilliant lady, but she is conniving. She is evil, and she is ruthless, and she will not stop at anything in getting her way, which her way means getting the head of John the Baptist. And so she will lie, she will cheat, she will even prostitute the life of her own daughter to get her way. These events are really seedy and slimy. In fact, after you go through them, you almost want to go away and, and take a bath. As I thought about it, it, it hit me. You know what? Uh, people sometimes say, well, the 21st century, we've never had such a wicked era, such a wicked time. Uh, they've never read the Bible. They've never read ancient history. I want to tell you something. Jerry Springer's got nothing on this story. Jersey Shore, that's preschool compared to this story. And all my children, even modern family, they cannot even enter into the arena 
with the world of the Herods. I call them the first century zoo family because that is what they were, nothing more than a bunch of animals. Divorce, adultery, incest, drunkenness, striptease dancing, and murder characterized this family. They were sinners on steroids, and one had a guilty conscience, and one had an agenda. She had a bitterness that was eating at her soul that she would satisfy, and she would not stop at anything to get what she wanted. The gist of it we find there in verse 17 and verse 18. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised, he said. Why? Verse 17. For it was Herod who had seized, uh, had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. And note how Mark says it. His brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. And John, note the tense of the verb here, had been saying. He said it over and over and over to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Here's what's going on. Herod Antipas evidently went to Rome for a visit. And living in Rome was his half-brother, Philip. And his half-brother, Philip, was married to a woman named Herodias. Now, interestingly, we learn as we try to track down the Herodian family tree that, that Herodias was his niece. And now that she is married to Philip, she is also his sister-in-law. So he meets a woman named Herodias. She is his niece. And she is his sister-in-law. Well, either he seduced her or she seduced him. We don't know which for sure, but we do know this. She left her husband and she divorced him and she married Herod Antipas. So now Herod is married to his niece, his former sister-in-law, and an adulterous woman. That's who he's married to. And needless to say, things did not go well as a result of this unholy union. Needless to say, Philip was ticked off that his wife had been stolen. Furthermore, Antipas, to marry Herodias, divorced his first wife, who happened to be the daughter of Aretas IV, who was the ruler of the Nabataean kingdom that was adjacent to Galilee. Needless to say, Aretas was not happy that his daughter had been dissed and disgraced and mistreated, and so it caused all sorts of political tension, and eventually... War. And Aretas kicked Herod Antipas' tail all over that part of the world. It was not a good day for him when he ticked off Aretas. Furthermore, he had this crazy, wild-eyed prophet bellowing day in and day out against his sin, John the Baptist. In fact, John perhaps went back to the Old Testament and quoted to him Leviticus 18:16, which said, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And again, Leviticus 20, 21, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So he's living in adultery. He's living in incest. And the Bible says there in verse 18, John had been saying. He said it over and over and over and over. It is not lawful for you to be doing what you're doing. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, it may have um, bothered Herod Antipas, but it ticked off royally this first century Jezebel by the name of Herodias. Verse 19, she had a grudge against him. And the text says that she wanted to put him to death. But for some reason, as we're about to see, 
she could not. You say, why could she not do this? Well, we discover very clearly why she could not do it in verse 20. And it's interesting, six things are noted here in verse 20 about how Herod felt about John. Number one, Herod feared John. Number two, he knew that he was a righteous and holy man. Number three, he kept him safe. Kept him safe from whom? Kept him safe from Herodias. Number four, he kept hearing him. Number five, he was greatly perplexed. The word means to be puzzled or to be even in distress or anxious. And, and finally, he heard him gladly. Isn't that amazing? Here's this evil, wicked man that John is getting in his face every time he can. And he essence says, John, give me some more. John, I'll be back tomorrow. And I know the message I heard today will be the message I'll hear tomorrow, but he kept receiving it. Why? Because at least for a brief moment in his life, a very brief moment, uh, he had a conscience. But here's the deal. You hear God's Word clearly proclaimed, you can't stay neutral. That's true for me, that's true for you, that's true for the people in your churches. They hear God's Word clearly taught and clearly proclaimed. They can't stay neutral. They'll either move toward God or they'll move away from God. And of course, in Herod's case, he will choose the latter and he will move away from God. And so Herod is keeping John safe from Herodias. But as it says there in verse 19, she had a grudge. It means to have it in for someone. She, she wanted to get him. And secondly, she wanted to put him to death, but she could not. She could not call out the, the royal hitmen. She could not call out her private assassination squad. And so she would, have to, she would have to bide her time, and she would have to wait for an opportune moment to get John, and she was more than willing to wait. In fact, the wonderful New Testament scholar T.W. Manson says it so well, and I quote, Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. So he's safe in prison for a while, but only a while. She's just going to wait for the right time, and when the right time comes, she will move. You know, it's interesting to think about how different John the Baptist is from this man named Herod. Think about it for a moment. Here's John the Baptist, a hair-coated prophet. Here's Herod Antipas in a gorgeously robed as a ruler. Here's John the Baptist, austere and simple, but here's Herod Antipas, flamboyant and ornate. Here's John the Baptist, righteous. Here's Herod Antipas, debaucherous. Here's John the Baptist, a prophet without price. Here's Herod Antipas, a man who could be bought almost by anyone. Here's John the Baptist with great moral courage and a clear conscience. But here's Herod Antipas, a spineless coward with a troubled conscience. Here's John the Baptist who maintained his integrity and lost his head. Here's Herod Antipas who fought his, his integrity and lost his soul. And later we'll see another man who is as spineless as Herod Antipas. His name is Pilate. And just like Herod Antipas will betray an innocent man, so will Pilate. When you do what you do in faithful service to the Lord, some will fear you. Some will try to stop you. But number three, some will attempt to destroy you. We now move to the final act of this tragedy. 
And if you've never read the story before, intuitively you would know, you know, I just kind of have a feeling things are not going to turn out very well for John. And they don't. There's a famous statement that's often attributed to William Shakespeare, but I searched it out in preparation for this study and found out that actually a man named William Congreve said it in a play that he wrote entitled The Morning, not M-O-R-N-I-G, but The Morning Weeping Bride. And the statement is one you'll all know, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Now, Herodias had not been scorned as a lover by John, but she had been condemned and called out as a treacherous, adulterous woman. And she would have her revenge. And how far she was willing to go is really, really amazing. It begins to unfold for us there in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday. By the way, the Jews in the first century considered birthday celebrations pagan. And they would not do it. But Herod throws a birthday bash, a stag birthday bash for himself. And it says there in verse 21, he invited the, the movers and the shakers, the important people. He invited his nobles. Uh, the NIV says his high officials. He invited his military commanders and he invited the leading men of Galilee. And we can imagine what's going on in this uh, room of celebration with these unregenerate men uh, drinking and carousing with women luridly moving about. Uh, there's no doubt that they're getting drunk and uh, their sensual desires are, are revving up. And it's just as, as evil and wicked as you could imagine. I mean, no gentleman's club would approach what was going on here as bad as those things are. And so Herodias knows the man she's married to. She knows his strengths, which are few, and she knows his weaknesses, which are many. And so she does something that is utterly amazing when you think about it from the perspective of a mother. Verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in. Now, we learn from Josephus that her name was Salome. We also learn from the word that is used here that most likely she was nothing more than a teenager. And since she had been born to Philip and Herodias, she is not only Herod Antipas's uh, stepdaughter, she is also his niece. And yet Herodias doesn't care that she is about now to degrade her daughter, treat her daughter like a striptease dancer. She will not stop at anything to kill the man of God. So the text says in verse 22, she danced, and she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. He vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, he is exaggerating there. He's actually parroting words that you find in the book of Esther in chapter 5, verse 2 and verse 3. The fact of the matter is, Herod really could not give her anything because he owned nothing. He was a lowly tetrarch who was a ruler under the authority of Rome. And so what he's in essence saying is, look, you have pleased me. And so let me do something really, 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 really nice for you. And so now the stage is set and the trap has been laid. And so note what it says there in verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And so she came in immediately with haste to the king, and she asked, saying, I want you 
to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, this is one of those times when it's really good that you have been forced at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary to read and learn both Hebrew and Greek. There's no uh, significant word study to be gleaned here, but the ordering of the sentence is very instructive because literally, here's what she said, and I will say it the way I think she said it. I desire that you give me immediately on a platter the head of John the Baptist. In other words, the phrase, the head of John the Baptist, comes at the end. Give me, okay, immediately, whatever you ask, on a platter. Oh, she wants a great banquet. She wants a, a great uh, treat. The head of John the Baptist. Evidently, Salome added the phrase on a platter. Like mother, like daughter. Verse 26, the king, Herod Antipas, was exceedingly sorry because, as we know, he, he liked John in, in the midst of all that was going on, amazingly so. But because of his oaths and his guests, he, he can't break his word. He certainly can't lose face with these nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. He did not want to break his word. Verse 27, immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. He brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. In my mind, I think Mark has given us the shorthand, but here's what happens. He cuts off his head. The executioner gives the head to Herod. Herod gives the head to Salome. And this teenage girl proudly walks into the chamber where her mother is. Imagine a teenage girl carrying the head of God's prophet into the chamber of her mother's, and it's done. And her troublemaker is gone. Verse 29 is basically anticlimactic and sad to the core. When his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body. I don't know if they ever received his head. Who wonders and who knows what Herod perhaps did with God's man on this occasion with his head, but... They came and took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. It's amazing, isn't it? John the Baptist was declared by Jesus to be the greatest man who ever lived. I had not thought about it much before I did this study. He died like Jesus in his early 30s. And most likely, think about this, he only had a public ministry for the Lord for one year. I've had the joy now of serving the Lord for 54, not 54, 34 years. Hopefully 54, but that's God's business. I've learned that's God's business. He got a year, one year. And yet Jesus says, greatest man ever born, natural of a woman, that's easy. It's John the Baptist. So what do we learn from all this, uh, Danny? Well, we learned a lot of things. I just jotted down some things that immediately came to my mind. Number one, bad things do happen to good people. John was a godly man, and he got executed for it. Life is often unfair, isn't it? 
you were to ask any of my four sons, what was your dad's favorite saying growing up? They would grin and say, life isn't fair. Because it isn't. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. But never forget, God sees and God knows. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 12 and 13, you have the parallel account of the murder of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And very interestingly, Matthew focuses and gives us some information as to the reaction of Jesus. And here's what it says in Matthew 14, verse 12. His disciples came and took the body of John and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Can you imagine it for a moment? They come and tell him, John's dead. Herod cut his head off. And Jesus says, um, I need some time alone. Want us to come with you? No. I just need to get away. And by himself, he gets in a boat and goes to a secluded place. I, I imagine he had a long conversation with his father. I can imagine he grieved. I know he hurt. I imagine he wept. And I also know this. <clears throat> he did not forget. In Luke chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, you have the reaction of Jesus to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas sent a delegation <clears throat> to see Jesus. And they said, uh, Herod would like to see you. He, he wants to welcome you. And Jesus said to them, you go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I will go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish from Jerusalem. Bottom line, paraphrasing, he said, you go tell that fox, stick it in his ear. I will go where I go, I will do what I do, and he can't stop it. There is, by the way, one other event where Jesus and Herod Antipas come together. Remember, Pilate was trying to find a way out. And so he said, uh, well, he's from Galilee. Send him to Herod. And so in Luke chapter 23, verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some miracle done by him. So he questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. It is the only time in the Bible where our Lord refuses to talk to someone. Show me something, Jesus. Stone cold face. Talk to me, Jesus. Silence. Why? Because he remembered what he had done to John. And I think he also knew at this point that conscience that for a brief period was open. It was now seared beyond redemption. So how do we close? I think we can say a couple of things. Number one, death cannot silence a life. And murdering someone to what will not put an end to their witness. We know the faithful saying, being dead, yet he still speaks. And I would remind all of us this morning, nobody, nobody names their son Herod. 
but millions around the world bear the name of John. Herod and Herodias may have received his head on a platter, but our Lord received his soul into heaven forever. John lost his head, but Herod, Herodias, Salome, they lost their soul. You tell me who won and who lost. I suspect when I get to heaven, if I have the opportunity and I get to see John, I suspect that I will see him with a big grin on his face. And I suspect that if I were to ask him, John, was it worth it? He would say, oh, I would do the same thing again a thousand times. Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. On that day, when that executioner took my head, he sent me into the presence of Jesus. He actually was a very good friend to me. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? This passage of Scripture has haunted me for several weeks as I worked through it. Because it just seems so unfair, it doesn't seem right. And yet, Lord, you're sovereign, you're providential, and it was your decision that John would have a ministry of a year. It was your providence that allowed the evil Herod and Herodias to take his head. And yet, Lord, you have continued to bear and grant an eloquent witness to this faithful prophet of yours. Now, Lord, as we get ready to leave today, just remind us of this one thing. We're not promised a long ministry. John makes that clear one year. Jesus makes that clear three years. And so, Lord, we ought not to take for granted what we can do today or tomorrow. Tomorrow might not come. And so, Lord, place within our hearts a burning passion to be faithful today, right now, just like John. We ask and pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.